Good morning. I'll draw your attention to my picture on the screen, if you can see that this morning. Um, that's not the Alamo, <laughs> but it is a depiction of the Alamo. Uh, that, that little building right there was actually built by John Wayne, and it's in southwest Texas, and uh, I guess it represents what he thought the Alamo looked like in March of 1836. For Cricket and I, it represents something else. It represents the closest we ever came to being divorced. <laughs> we were in Austin one weekend. This was a long time ago. We didn't have the kids yet, and uh, uh, we were in Austin, Melbourne, for the state tournament. And um, this doesn't happen much anymore, but used to, when you would get to a hotel, a lot of them had a newsstand in the lobby, and that newsstand would contain flyers and brochures of all the local attractions, okay? Those of you that are a little bit older may remember that. And that was always my first stop. And I would get one of everything. And I would take it back to the room, and I would read them word for word, and Cricket uh, didn't mind because it kept me quiet. She didn't mind until this particular weekend. Because in the newsstand in the hotel in Austin was a brochure that had this picture on it, and it said, come to Brackettville and see how John Wayne made the Alamo come alive. I was in. That's all I needed. See, I like that kind of stuff. I do. I like history stuff, and I like where movies and television shows were made, and you know, just to think that, hey, they did this here, and they were actually filming at this spot. I just, I just like that stuff, and cricket does not. But somehow, I, I convinced her that we needed to go. So we, we do. We leave Austin, and we head for Brackettville, Texas. And now remember, this is before cell phones, this is before GPS, and, and I really had absolutely no idea how far it was to Brackettville. And had I known, I sure wouldn't have told her. But um, turns out it was almost four hours. I said local attraction at the thing. Nearly four hours. And the farther we drive, the more desolate it becomes. And the more desolate it becomes, the more irritated she gets. I remember thinking to myself, the one time she doesn't fall asleep the minute we start the car, it's got to be today. Well, we get there, and Alamo Village, where this was made, is not in downtown Brackettville proper. Now, you've got to go another 20 miles off the pavement 
this remote place. It used to be this big cattle ranch that, that they turned into this movie set. And you finally get there, and there's a gate at the front of it, and there's an old, tired gentleman at the gate, and for 10 bucks, he'll open the gate for you. So we pay him, and, and he opens the gate, and as we're about to go through, he says, hey, you picked a good day. It's not crowded. That might have been a bit of an understatement. Y'all, there is nobody here. There's not a soul at this place, okay? And you just walk and you look, and, and I'm trying. I really am, you know? And, and I, said, I said, honey, can, can you imagine that, that they filmed this right here? And she said, no. <laughs> and I said, I bet you John Wayne stood right here on this same rock that I'm standing on. And she said, John Wayne's dead. <laughs> and when we were out there by ourselves, I'm thinking, you know, if she leaves me here, then nobody ever going to find me. So it didn't take long, and, and we were through with Alamo Village, and, and we got back in the car, and we headed home, and we're now five hours farther away than when we got up that morning. And you're probably wondering, why am I telling you that story today? Well, it's because that John Wayne story reminds me of another John Wayne story. About a year before he made the Alamo, John Wayne made a movie called Rio Bravo. And uh, about six years after that, he made the movie again. Now, he called it El Dorado the second time, but it's the same movie. Both movies have a drunk sheriff who's trying to regain his honor and save the town. Both movies have a singing cowboy in it, you know. Uh, Dean Martin plays the drunk sheriff in Rio Bravo. Robert Mitchum plays him in El Dorado. Ricky Nelson was the singing uh, young cowboy in the first one. James Caan was the second, played it in the second one. And you go, well, who did John Wayne play? Well, John Wayne played John Wayne in every movie he was ever in. And there was a formula in all of those movies. There's, there's a hero, there's a bad guy, there's a conflict. And then there's some kind of resolution. And a simple guy like me, as I read scripture, I think it follows a pretty similar formula. I don't care what part of God's word that you want to look at this morning. If you look at it long enough and you read it contextually and you you make sure that you include the backstory and you don't just pick a verse or two out, but you really read what's going on from Genesis to Revelation. I truly believe that every story in there points to the hero who is Jesus. And the theme of our, of our scripture is grace. It's a depiction of grace. Now, the names change kind of like John Wayne movies do, but the plot's the same. And I have to think that if God, 
intentionally use that same premise over and over and over again, there's something about that that he wants us to get. So let's look at one of those stories. 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. The scripture says, David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba, and they summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And at your service, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan, and he is lame in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir, the son of Emil in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Medir, son of Emil. When Mephibosheth, excuse me, son of Jonathan and son of Saul came to David, he bowed down to pay honor to him, and David said, Mephibosheth. Don't be afraid. David said to him, For I will surely show you kindness. For the sake of your father, Jonathan, I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of the master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever the Lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. The background to our movie this morning, our story today, we, we, we know that, we, we remember that, um, that the nation of Israel kept pleading for God to send them a king. You remember that. Over and over and over again, they would get the leaders to pray to God to send them uh, a human being to serve as, as a king for their nation. Now, God said, I'll be your king. And they said, no, we'd rather have somebody else. They'd rather have a king than the king. And God said, okay. Sometimes we have to be careful what we ask for, don't we? They had a king, and we know that his name was Saul, and we know that Saul had some issues. 
Saul was um, paranoid. Saul was, um, uh, he was anxious. He was um, nervous. He um, didn't always make good decisions because Saul was crazy. Okay? He literally had bad wiring. He, he was always jealous of David. And people in his, his day made this worse, and they made up songs and things about, you know, Saul's killed 1,000, but David's killed 10,000. And every time Saul had to hear that, you know that his anxiety and all the stuff that he dealt with all the time would just get worse and worse and worse. And you remember David, okay, who had been appointed to be the king even when he was a, a child, a young man, even though he could have, he did not get in Saul's way. He was loyal to Saul. And Saul had a son named Jonathan who became David's best friend. And he told David, he said, I get it. My dad's a little out there. He, he goes off the reservation a lot. I understand that you are the man that God intends to be the ruler of Israel, and I'm going to be loyal to him, and I'm going to be loyal to you, David. And they were the best of friends. And Jonathan went so far as to even uh, signify his loyalty to his friend David with a blood oath. He, he shed his own blood as a, as a symbol, as a depiction of his undying loyalty to his friend David. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. David is now the king. Saul has died. Jonathan has died. And one of the first things that David does as he becomes the new king, he begins to ask people, is there anybody left from Saul's family? Now, had he stopped right there, this would have been a normal question for David to pose. Because the rule of thumb back then was when you become the new guy and when you take over, when you win the battle and you are now established as the king, the first thing you need to do is go kill anybody that's left from the opposition. Clean house. Get rid of them. And so I really am confident this morning that when David posed that question, they were waiting for him to follow it up with, is there anybody left from the house of Saul so that we can go and destroy them and get rid of them? But that's not what David said, was it? David said, is there anybody left from Saul's family that I might show kindness to? Whoa. This is a new wrinkle. This is not the way kings act. He had the power to do anything he wanted to do. He had the resources to do anything that he wanted to do. He snaps his fingers, and they go find people that are related to Saul, and they're dead, and we move on. That's what kings are supposed to do with people that oppose them. But David asked a question that denoted just the opposite intention in his heart. You see, in our movie this morning, David gets to play the part of God. Because God is the king. 
And God does have unlimited resources. And God does have all power. And he is holy. And he is righteous. And I am not. And by all rights, he should do away with me. But what did David say? What did he say? He said, is there anyone left from the house of Saul that I might show kindness to because of Jonathan? Because of Jonathan. Wait, whoa. You see, David didn't know anybody was left. He didn't know about Mephibosheth. Okay? He, it wasn't that he had a, a special feeling for, for the for the uh, grandson or anything like that. But what David was remembering was the blood oath that Jonathan sealed their friendship with. David was motivated to do what he wanted to do by the blood. By the blood. Jonathan gets the good part in our movie today. He gets to be a depiction of Jesus. He gets to be a depiction of Jesus. He gets to represent what Jesus represents to you and me. Because when God wants to exercise the power that he has as king to show kindness and to show favor and to show grace and love to a people who do not deserve that and to a people who are born the wrong way and really can't even uh, take God's favor upon themselves, instead of looking at me and looking at all the problems and looking at all the issues, our God says, is there anybody left that I can show kindness to because of the blood that my son shed? Isn't that cool this morning? I mean, that's just an awesome, awesome thought that when God thinks of us, all of his thoughts are filtered through the blood on Calvary. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't concentrate on my weaknesses and my lameness and my background and all the things that are obvious to you and me. He's motivated by the blood. He's motivated by the blood. Jonathan had the cool part. He gets, to, he gets to depict Jesus in this story. But you know, we need to give Jonathan credit where credit's due. In the day in which Jonathan lived, had he just kept quiet? You know what's going to happen to him? He's going to be the king. Now, yeah, his daddy's crazy, but it doesn't matter. He's going to get to be the king. Just as soon as dad's out of the way, that's the natural order of things. And he knew that from a human standpoint. He knew that from a mental standpoint. But from a spiritual standpoint, he knew that's not what God wanted. And so, oh, good. Bless Jonathan's heart. He just has a happy life. Because he, he did what God wanted to do, and it never bothered him, and everything was just hunky-dory, and nothing could be further from the truth. Let me tell you something. Jonathan was disappointed. 
at the will of God. Let me say that one more time. Jonathan was disappointed by the will of God. But Jonathan knew something that a lot of folks have a hard time coming to grips with, and that is the same thing that my algebra teacher used to tell me when I was a kid. You don't have to like it. You just have to do it. Jonathan understood that obeying God is not always pleasant. It's not always fun. It is always right. You see, this morning, if we could grasp that as a world, the complexion of our society would look totally different. If we understood that I don't have to like all the commands that God gives, if I don't have to agree, if I don't have to feel good about all the things that God calls us to do, our world would look totally different than it does right now. We would not abort babies because it's inconvenient. We would not, and I say this, guys, with all compassion and, and respect and, and love for people who struggle with these kinds of things, but we would not promote an agenda where someone, a mere human being, can determine that the gender in which God cause them to be born with is somehow not enough or not accurate. You understand what we do when we say things like that? What we're saying is that God is wrong. That, that God made a mistake. I don't feel the way that he made me so evidently he did something wrong, and so I'm going to fix it. I'm going to change it. And again, it's not about whether or not I like what God says and what God does. I'm not called to like it. I'm not called to agree with all of it. I'm not called to understand all of it. I am commanded to obey all of it. I, I get this morning that the part-time fill-in guy is not supposed to talk about sin. But these particular issues, these particular lies are killing our kids. They're killing a generation of people who are just, there's no other way to, to say it, that are just being lied to. So what, we as Christians... We have got, the church has got to become proactive in these kind of matters. And we have to do that with compassion and with love and with the example that David sets for his former enemies. We have to do that with understanding. We have to do that with patience. But we have to do that. Obeying God's not always pleasant, it's not always fun, but it is always right. There's one character left in our story, 
this morning. And that's Mephibosheth. Oh, bless his heart. How bad does your mother have to hate you to name you Mephibosheth? Evidently pretty bad. Because not only can no one pronounce that, but from what I understand, the Hebrew translation to English, that word literally means full of shame. Full of shame. He's about five years old when his grandfather and, and his father are killed. Don't know much about his mother. We assume that she's, she's dead. She's out of the picture too. He's raised in Saul's house by servants, by nannies and nurses. And at one particular time, uh, Saul's house is under attack, and they're trying to get him uh, to safety, and one of those ladies drops him and crushes the bones in his lower legs and feet, and he is crippled for life. He, he'll never walk again. And they leave the palace of Saul's house, and they go to a place called Lodabar. Now, if Mephibosheth is Hebrew for shame, Lodabar was Hebrew for ghetto, okay? This was a terrible place, okay? Aptly named because the bar was low in Lodabar, okay? It was a terrible place. And David hears that the grandson of Saul is there, and what does he say? He says, go get him. Go get him. He can't walk. He can't get there himself. He's just a child. He doesn't have resources. He doesn't have means. He's living on the wrong side of the tracks. And David says, go get him. Even though he's helpless, even though he's desperate, even though um, he has nothing to offer, he calls himself a dog. David says, go get him. And bring him here, and he tells him, from this day forward, you will eat at the king's table. Now, that's a poetic, romantic, almost Shakespearean way to say, you are now my son. David formally adopted him. And the scripture that we, we went on to read says that for the rest of his life, for the rest of his days, he ate at the king's table. Oh, were they perfect days? No. There's a lot more to the story. Mephibosheth, you know, he's got some of his granddad in him. He, he makes some bad choices later on in his life. He and David have some struggles and some arguments. But for the rest of his days, the scripture says, he ate at the king's table. It was not a perfect relationship, but it was a permanent relationship. The king and the helpless, crippled person from the worst family background you can imagine living on the wrong side of the tracks. That individual becomes the son of the king. In our movie this morning, Mephibosheth, 
He stars as us. He's a depiction of who we are. Completely unable by ourselves and, and through our own means to get within arm's reach of the king. We just can't do it. Our sin nature and, and all that, that we are separates us from a holy God and there is nothing in this world that will bridge that gap except the blood. Except the blood. And when God sees that, he takes each of us as messed up as we may be, and he brings us to his table. And though we're going to mess up again tomorrow and next week and next year, when it's time to eat, we're going to be with Dad. We're going to be with Dad. You see, our story is a depiction of grace. And this morning, each and every one of us here are playing one of two roles, one of two parts this morning. Somebody may be here today, and you need grace. You need it. You can identify so well with Mephibosheth. You know what it's like to come from crazy um, relatives. You know what it's like to not have what you need even to be able to function in this world. You know what it's like to make bad choices and have those things come back to haunt you time and time and time again. You know what it's like to be associated in the wrong places and with the wrong people. You need grace. I'm going to ask you this morning, don't leave this building without it. Don't leave this building without it. Because just like David in the story had absolutely anything that he wanted and it was up to him and him alone to disperse that to whoever he wanted it to, our God's abilities and capacities and resources make David's look like nothing. And he's here today, and he wants to give you that grace. He wants to do all of those things for you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants you to be at his table. If you've never known that, I, I, I'm, I'm serious this morning. Man, don't leave the old American Express commercial said don't leave home without it. Don't leave church without it this morning. You talk to Byron, you talk to Will, you talk to Glenn or Sammy or me or whoever. But if you need grace this morning, get it. Just get it. If that's not you, you understand what it's like to sit at the king's table now, even though you didn't earn it, even though you... You didn't work your way there just one day. The king saw the blood and he adopted you. Then your role is to be a depiction of grace. Your role, your job, my job is to represent that grace. Everybody that God brings into our path, we all have a responsibility to do that.
Let's pray together as our music team comes. Father, thank you today for your word, Lord. It, it's just amazing. It, it, it boggles my mind each and every time I read something, God, that is uh, maybe thousands of years uh, before Jesus came or far removed geographically or socially, and yet it just, like a straight arrow, points right to you. Thank you for that. Thank you for putting the dots real close together for somebody like me. Thank you, God, for being the king with the eternal attitude of who can I show favor to? Who can I bless? Who can I give grace to? And thank you, Jesus, for your perfect blood that covers all my imperfections. And when the king looks at me, he can't see those. He only sees what you did. Help us this morning to deal with you individually as you would have us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing.